The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Our text verses this morning are verses 36 through 46, and these are verses that speak of the agony of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a very difficult text to preach. The grief of Christ in the garden is not something that we can really measure. It's not something that we truly understand. And so it's a very difficult thing to get a good sense of what Jesus went through as he knelt in that garden. The Gospels are the story of the life of Christ, and that's really a story that we ought to know better than any other story that we've ever learned. It's truly amazing that there are so many Christians that know very little about the life of Christ. I don't really mind getting questions about it because I, I, I can answer questions. But I am surprised that there, there are so many seasoned Christians that have so little understanding of what Christ said and did. And you know that we really have a problem when we have people in the church that know every statistic of their favorite ball players, and they know the records of all the teams that are in the playoffs, but they're very strangely ignorant of the details of Christ's life. We spend very little of our time in the Bible. Most people spend copious amount of times, uh, time watching ball games and watching TV and reading novels and surfing the internet and other types of entertainment. And if that sounds like I'm picking on you here in the beginning of the message and you see yourself in these first comments, then yes, I am picking on you. Uh, most pastors and churches don't really care how much that you know. They're not going to tell you that you need to know more. They're not going to pick on people because they know that people don't like to be picked on. And they know that, they know that it makes people feel bad and they don't want people to feel bad. But if we do anything less than what Jesus and the apostles did, then we're setting people up for a far less demanding Christianity than that was taught by Jesus and the apostles. You need to understand very clearly that God's expectations for his people are very high. And so when the Bible talks about the difficulties of the Christian life, you, you can expect that you're going to go through those. Many people think that, that it's just easy street Christianity, but Christianity was hard even for its founder. It was hard for Jesus and harder for him than anyone who's ever known the way of Christ. And this is a scripture that makes that abundantly clear. I'd like to read these scriptures and then we're going to explore this excruciatingly difficult time in the end of Jesus' life. We'll do this on two Sunday mornings. We'll just get a start today. So if you'll stand with me as we look at God's Word in Matthew 26 and verse number 36, beginning there. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. 
Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Father, we come to you now and we just ask you, Lord, to help as we look into this passage of Scripture. It's really too deep for our understanding. But give us a little bit of glimpse, a little bit of insight into it that we might just get a taste of what the Savior went through and understand uh, how he was so broken with grief for our sins and for what he was about to do. Lord, help us through this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In my introduction, I said that Christianity was very difficult for, for Christ. Jesus taught that his followers were to be partakers of his suffering, and he told them that a disciple is not above his master nor a servant above his Lord, and that's very telling as we look at what happened to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. The lives of Christians are filled with many of the same things that Christ went through, what he experienced. Uh, the disciples would experience the pain of persecution as Jesus did. They would also suffer the pain of rejection. They faced death because of their faith in Christ. And today we don't really think very much about dying for Christ because of the time that we live in and the place that we live in. And we have freedom here to worship as we choose. But there are actually millions of Christians that are across the world that fear for their lives every time that they gather to worship. Many of them meet in small house churches in secrecy and fear of being found out because they know if they are found out, it could mean prison and death for them. At the beginning of last year, uh, Mona sent me a note, and I still remember the timing of that because I just left the Grand Canyon when I received an email from her. And as usual, I was doing something dangerous. Um, I was driving Interstate 40 at a pretty good clip. And I was reading emails as I went, something I don't recommend that you do. I confess. But I recall the timing of that because of where we were. And Mona had sent this request for prayer for a friend of her brother that was facing death because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He'd been put into jail in Iran, and he was waiting for a decision about his execution. And he said that he knew that when... He trusted Christ that it could come to this, and so he prayed for strength that he could meet the hour of death. 
Now that's a very high demand. Paul said that suffering for Christ is given to us. It's something that just comes with the territory. And that suffering can be harsh and it can even come to the point of death. But there is something that we can learn in this text about that, that there is nothing that we have ever gone through, there is no sorrow that we have ever experienced, not anything that we've encountered that's not also been experienced by Christ. There is no suffering that we're ever going to go through that has not been matched and exceeded a million times over by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as He faced death on the cross. Now if you think about it, those that have died for Christ, uh, at least sometime in their life, have had periods where it was light-hearted and easy. There were times when they had days of rest and they could perhaps make troubles fade away into the recesses of their minds. There are times that we laugh and we enjoy life. Uh, we act as if we don't have a care in the world. That happens to us a lot of times. But it might interest you to know that there were no days in the life of Christ that were like that. Nobody actually knows what happened to Jesus during his childhood. But we do know this, that from the time that he entered into his ministry at his baptism, there became a very seriousness about his ministry. His baptism pictured his death. And when he publicly declared that devotion he had to the Father's will... The cross was always front and center in his mind. Everything that he did was to get him to the cross and the fulfillment of the Father's will for his death. Now, we actually do have one glimpse into his early childhood, and we learn from this that Christ was already thinking about death. At the end of Luke chapter 2, Jesus was with his parents in Jerusalem, They'd gone there to celebrate Passover, which, of course, we've already learned that Passover is a, a picture of what would happen to Christ, that he was the Paschal Lamb. He's the one that was going to be sacrificed to die for the sins of his people. And when that particular Passover was done, the entourage of his family and friends left Jerusalem to go back to Nazareth. And the Bible says that when they were three days into that journey, or in other words, when they were almost home, they came to understand or realize that the child Jesus was not with them. And so they were frantic, as any parents might be, and they decided to return to Jerusalem to look for him and see what had happened. And what he had done was to skip off before they'd left, and he'd gone into the temple. And there Joseph and Mary, uh, being worried about him, returned and they found him there discussing discussing the Word of God, discussing theology with the erudite theologians. And Joseph and Mary were shocked that Jesus was there because apparently they, he was in some place they didn't expect him to be. He was always, I would think, usually where they expected him to be. And so they asked him in, in this way. They said, well, why did you do this to us? In other words, they would ask, why did you cause us all, all of this, this worry over you? And the answer that Jesus gave was remarkable. He said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? And right there you have to be struck with, the, with the, the thought that this child Jesus knew that his life was designed for one thing, that he was going to die, that he was doing his father's business, that it was the father's will that he would die. And we don't know what happened to him in the next 18 years of his life, but I would strongly suggest that that incident at age 12 was the beginning, or at least uh, had some part going forward in grooming him for, uh, grooming him by the Father to suffer this agonizing death. 
And then at 30 years old, he was baptized, and that was his ordination into the ministry. And immediately upon hearing the words of the Father that he was well pleased with him, uh, and with the acceptance of that ministry, he was then led into the wilderness to be tempted in the temptation, to be toughened in that temptation. And soon afterwards, he was in constant confrontation with the religious leaders. Soon afterwards, he was dealing with Herod, who sought him to be a magician for his parties. And then he was confronted by religious leaders and the common people alike who were divided over him. And even these 12 disciples that he'd personally chosen often doubted him, and then in the end, deserted him. Now, never do we ever see in scriptures that there were days of laughter for Jesus. There is not one scripture that says that Jesus laughed. Often in films that portray the life of Jesus, they'll show some whimsical moments. They'll show that Christ did have a good time, but you don't actually find that in scripture. Instead, this is what you find. And this is first today, and that is the oppression of sorrow. Jesus was always weighed down with sorrow. And we go to our text and we see that Jesus and the disciples had left the upper room. They observed the Passover and there Jesus gave them the emblem of his death, which was the Lord's Supper. And then they sang the great song of the Hillel. And then Jesus entered into a conversation about his death and his resurrection. And he informed his disciples that he, the shepherd, was going to be smitten and they, the sheep, would be scattered. And he quoted Old Testament prophecy to show, to show his disciples that all of them would forsake him and flee him in the hour of death. And they refused to believe that, and so the discussion continued as they made their way up the Mount of Olives. And then in verse number 36, they came to the place that is called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane was a garden, possibly owned by some wealthy person in Jerusalem, And I think today most of us think of Gethsemane as a park setting rather than a working patch of farmland. And today it is a park setting. Uh, There's no activity that goes on there except tourists that walk through the olive trees that are still growing hundreds of years old in these evenly spaced rows. But when Jesus came there, it was a working garden. The inhabitants of Jerusalem lived within the city walls and There wasn't room for gardens there, and so they would own patches of land on the hillsides that were round, just like this garden that was on the hillside of the Mount of Olives that's called Gethsemane. And so the disciples and Jesus came to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that name actually, Gethsemane, means olive press. Someone has suggested that the name was very appropriate for what Jesus experienced there. The work of the garden was to press the oil, press oil out of olives. And so olives were put under these huge stones. They were pressed under the huge stones uh, and put under that extreme pressure to squeeze the oil out of them. And perhaps that name, Gethsemane, is very descriptive because Christ was under extreme pressure as he contemplated the death of the cross. But I want you to understand that the pressure that he was under did not begin at Gethsemane. And my introduction was to show you that this night was not the beginning of sorrows for him, but it began even maybe as early as when he was 12 years old and he was already thinking of death. And can you imagine that kind of weight that would be put on the mind of a 12-year-old child? 
And then as he began his ministry, he was thinking of death. When he was in the middle of his ministry, it was death. He came down to the end of his ministry and it was death. And all along the way, there was, there was Satan and priests and people that afflicted him. And often he was just one step ahead of a premature death. And we get such a vivid picture of this in the Old Testament in that important messianic passage of Isaiah chapter 53. I'd like you to turn there for just a moment if you would. And here in Isaiah, we can see some descriptive words that relate to Christ's oppression of sorrows. Isaiah 53 explains this to us in such vivid terms. And beginning in verse number 3 in Isaiah 53... It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so openeth not he his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now we see there a list of words that describe what Jesus' life was like. Despised, rejected, grief, no esteem, stricken, smitten, Afflicted, wounded, bruised, chastised, stripes, oppressed, cut off, travail. There are many, many descriptions of the deep sorrow of his life. And his whole life was full of this. And the last part of his life is just the compounding of these sorrows, all of them coming to bear, all of them being heaped up. He is filled with sorrows until he comes with a crushing weight that is so intense that his humanity could no longer bear it. Well, we're often tempted to complain about life's pressures and how hard that we have it. But can you imagine what it must have been like to live under the constant weight of death? And to face the persistent trials and and things that came against him on an hourly basis. There were times, I think, when men left him alone, but we know that Satan never did. And so he lived this pressure-packed existence, which makes it no mystery why Jesus was such a man of prayer. I mean, I'll talk about his prayers later, but there was no one who knew how much prayer is needed like the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you wonder how it was that he could go off by himself at night and he could pray the entire night, all you need to do is to try to understand the pressure that Christ was under. 
We can scarcely pray for five minutes and then we become bored. And that just shows you that our problems can never scratch the surface of the things that he went through. He had the Spirit without measure, and that's really good, because there's no one who could have ever withstood the pressure that he was under without cracking and being committed to an institution. Now, I know that we speak about his death, and we, talked about, we talk about how awful that it was, how horrible, but who among us could have withstood his life? And while there was so much of this going on, when every day these things were going on, we never find Christ being ill-tempered with anyone. It was hard to provoke him to wrath. Personal oppression never caused him to be angry. And the only time that he ever did act with vengeance of judgment is when he came to the temple and found that his father's glory was being challenged. And there he saw them buying and selling in the temple and he called, the, he called the temple a den of thieves because of what was going on there and he drove those money changers out of the temple. But what we learned about him in Isaiah 42 that we studied at Christmas time was the scripture says that he was not going to break a bruised reed. It said he wouldn't quench smoking flax and that was actually a prophecy of his demeanor he was not going to curse anyone although he had every right and every motivation to do so and i think that we really ought to think about that and we ought not to think about his life as being one that was whimsical and had little trouble and we ought not to think that he just came to one night of sorrow and then he came to one day of death and so that's the summation of all the troubles that christ went through no, the truth is, there was a tremendous weight that was placed upon him all of the time, every day, and that's a weight that none of us in this room could ever carry. And so they came to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the olive press, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray yonder. And we're aware that there's only 11 of them now. There were 11 that came to the gate. The 12th one would show up soon enough but he was no longer a part of the group. And so 11 of them came, and Jesus told them to wait there while he went to pray. And then he separated three of them from the group, James, Peter, James, and John. James and John are the sons of Zebedee. And they were separated from the group, and those three entered into the garden with Jesus. And so now there are eight men that are waiting at the gate, and they were left there to be a watch to be sentinels, to guard the privacy of Jesus as he went to pray to his father in the garden. Now three of them went with him because they were his closest friends. They were the main confidants. They're always mentioned as the ones that were closest to Jesus. And these three were always the most outspoken of all the disciples. The rest of the disciples barely speak in Scripture. Even Matthew, when he wrote this gospel account, he hardly even mentioned himself. And when he did, he talked about himself in the third person. We see that in Matthew 9, verse 9. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man. This is Matthew writing. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So Matthew never asserted himself in retelling the life of Christ. And Matthew didn't go into the garden with Jesus. And so what he tells us here are things that have been revealed to his mind by the Holy Spirit. And you might say, well, couldn't he have just asked Peter, James, and John what was going on there? And the answer to that is no, because they didn't hear it. 
they slept through it also. So it's just Peter, James, and John that are there. They go with him. They're the chosen ones to go because they are the leaders of the group. And then after his death, Peter and John remain prominent, but the others are barely mentioned again. And they entered into the garden, and there we see another expression of the terrible pressure that he was under. The Bible says that he began to be exceeding sorrowful. And so he turned and he spoke to those three, and he said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. And at that point, with that weight upon him, he needed to be alone. He was going to pray, and so he needed the privacy to be alone with his heavenly Father. And so he told those three to wait until he went a little further on. Luke tells us that he went about a stone's throw away. How far can you throw a rock? That's how far that Jesus went. And he was out of their hearing, so they didn't hear what happened as he talked to his father. Now let's take a moment to look at the words of his prayer. He was sorrowful and very heavy, even sorrowful to the point of death. So next we would look at the depression of separation. Now, I I have to tread very lightly here when I use the word depression. Depression has a very negative connotation today, and we relate that to mental illness. In depression, the mind isn't clear. Often, a person can't function properly. Sometimes that depression causes a person to act irrationally. Sometimes people even contemplate taking their own lives. And that's not the way that I use the word depression in speaking of Jesus. There are some translations that say that he was deeply distressed. One follows that by saying, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow. The new Schofield Bible that you don't see too much anymore uses the word depressed. And I can see why there are people that didn't really like that translation, especially considering this word in the modern context. It militates against what actually happened there. So when I use the word depressed, I'm not speaking of clinical depression. Jesus was in full control of his faculties, but he was depressed. And by that, I mean that he was pushed down. There was a mental weight that was on him as he was in the press of Gethsemane. Now, I've been blessed never to have had any kind of serious depression. I do remember that when my dad's health was bad and he had to step down from the pastor, being the pastor, and he was a pastor for 40 years, he had to step down and, and being a pastor was his life. And when he could no longer pastor the church, it was like his life had been taken from him. Giving up the pastorate was was giving up the people that he taught and people that he shepherded and that was depressing to him. And when he finally came out of that depression, he said, that is the worst of any sickness, any illness that I've ever had. And he had many of those. Many things were wrong with him. One day before he died, the doctors told him that he might live a little bit longer if he would have quintuple bypass surgery for a second time. And he said that he wouldn't go through that. But in any case, he said the depression. It was the depression that was the worst for him. And I might add this as well, that if you want to know what it is that keeps a pastor around for a long time, it's the Holy Spirit. It's only the Holy Spirit that can cause a pastor to stay in one place for a long time. 
Now, I don't like, I'm not complaining about this, but I promise you that there are troubling times and there are many heartaches for pastors. And most of the time, you don't see it and you don't even realize that it's going on. And sometimes it comes out of the poor appreciation for what you do. And I know that we shouldn't be this way. We're not supposed to be this way, but pastors are human. And after you put in 65 or 70 hours a week, every week, studying and trying to bring the people something substantial from the Word of God, your labor is placed on the level of common employment like a hired hand for a certain salary. And that can hurt. But putting that aside, there are other things that keep a pastor around. You love your people. You love the people that you teach. If you leave them, it's like leaving your family. It's like turning your kids over to somebody else to raise. That, that's how difficult it is to leave the people that you pastor. And so it was hard for my dad, and, and I truly do understand why he felt depression. But despite that lack of appreciation that some people give you, it's still a labor of love. And despite the fact that people can hurt your feelings in so many different ways, it's still God's call. It's still where God wants you to be. So you multiply that, I think, uh, an infinite number of times, and you're just beginning to scratch the surface of what Jesus went through in dealing with the people that he loved and he pastored. Now, let's see if we can explore just a little bit of what was on his mind. Most of the time, we spend our time in talking about Jesus defending his divinity. His divinity is what's most often challenged. And from the earliest days of Christianity, there were sects that argued that Jesus wasn't divine. And that's one of the reasons why, as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, I pointed out many times the proofs of Jesus' divinity. Now, in defense of divinity, we often lose sight of his humanity. Nobody really argues too much for Christ's humanity, because those who don't believe in God would love for us to stay right there. Just stay on the humanity of Jesus. And so our apologetics don't have a lot to do many times in trying to talk about that Jesus was truly human. But here in this passage, we do see his humanity. Where we meet face to face with a stark reality that Jesus was truly human as he was God. And he struggled being human even beyond the struggles that we experience, because he had more of the focus of Satan and his demons in the world that was against him. So what kind of things, as a human, what kind of things was he looking at, and what was it that weighed on his mind so much? Well, if you want to add maybe a little sub-point to your outline, you could put in there the temptation of Satan. Well, none of the gospel writers actually mentioned Satan as being a problem for Christ in the garden, but you have to know that he was there. Satan wanted Jesus to take the easy way out. And we often think that what Satan wanted most was to see Jesus hanging on a cross. But all that you need to do is go back and look at the way that Satan tempted him back in the wilderness. Because what Satan tried to do was to get Jesus to take the easy way out, to avoid the cross and take the kingdoms of the world right then, and Satan would help to declare him the king. Now, I want to talk about Satan more in conjunction with verse 42, so I'll save discussion of him for later. But in the meantime, Jesus was dealing with this weight, with this depression of separation. But separation from whom? 
Well, we talked about appreciation just a moment ago, how many people don't appreciate the pastor. Well, Jesus left a place of great appreciation. And he came to this earth and left that place of appreciation where there were holy angels that were saying things to him all the time, always praising him and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. The angels adored the Lord Jesus Christ. They adored him in heaven. But he looked down to this earth and he said, For now, I'd rather be there than here. And that's when Jesus began to show that supreme love that angels really can't understand. And he left all that purity of heaven to come to this earth in disgusting flesh to a cesspool of sin. And he came here for death. And death is nothing other than sin built up until it sucks all of the life out of the body. And then, on top of that, he came in the lowest form of man. He came as a servant. And unlike heaven where holy angels always adored him, he came to this earth where no man could or would actually appreciate him. And so we entered into a life of sorrow and rejection. And I think thinking about that depression, uh, having that depression of the adulation that's gone must have been a depressing prospect to him. He was separated from his true home. You know, I preached a Christmas sermon on that once. We, we had that song, I'll be home for Christmas. Jesus was not home for Christmas. He left home for Christmas. He was separated from his true home. And then more substantially than that, he was separated from his father. And never had Jesus been separated from his father. For all of eternity, he was with the father. But not now. Here we see him in the garden, bending down and praying as a man, as a human, with no face-to-face contact with his father. And that separation only became wider until Christ was just completely abandoned by the father. And we'll see that a little bit later. And then he was separated from his nation. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Jesus said that a prophet is not without honor, save, or except in his own country. Isaiah 53 is about the beginning of the millennium, actually. And that's when Israel will recognize the one that they pierced, the one that they rejected, and what a serious mistake that it was. When we come to the millennium, they'll realize what they did, and the Bible says they'll look on the one that they pierced. But for now... They look on him as they pierce him. And there is no care for him. There is no concern for him. Soon, without remorse, they were going to crucify him as a common criminal. And Jesus knew that in the garden. And how depressing would that be when you can't even get a hearing from those who are the chosen nation of God, the one that God embraced and called them his own people, And soon that same people, that same religious system would be crushed. The whole religious system would come crashing down. And did you know that Jesus even sorrowed over that? He said in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicken her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. He was separated from his people, and he won't be joined with them again until the second advent. 
And then finally, as I close this message today, this first part, what about his separation from his chosen disciples? Now, he had to walk off from them to pray. He had to separate himself from them. And that was agonizing. Uh, how, how agonizing was it to leave them? And I said, a pastor doesn't want to leave his people. Jesus is that pastor. He is the chief shepherd, the great shepherd. And he didn't like separation, even though he knew that it was temporary. But I don't think that Jesus was just thinking of his separation from them. He must have thought about the separation that they would impose. After teaching them for three years, they weren't going to stand by him. They thought that they would, but he knew that they wouldn't. And soon one of them would show up in short order and kiss him with a kiss of betrayal. And what might even be worse than that, three of them that were his closest companions would deny him. And the one that he spent the most time with would bitterly curse him and betray him with insistence that he had never had any association with Jesus. And that's about as cold as it can get. And all of that weight and that pain and that separation was bearing down on him. And all of it was bad. It was like being that little olive that's there under the massive weight of those huge stones in the olive press. And his life was being pressed out of him. There was a mental pressure that was so intense that he couldn't bear it without divine help. But we've not even come to the worst of it yet. The worst of it, I'm going to save to tell you about next week. But it seems like nothing could have been worse, but nothing actually touches the next extreme weight that we'll talk about then. But for now, let me just leave you with this. Don't wrap up all of Christ's sufferings into the experience of the cross. Don't wrap it all up into nails that were driven into his hands and his feet. If you really want to get a the whole picture of how much that Christ loved his people, you must look at his life. You must see his life and what it was like because of you. You know, you're worried about your happiness. Most people are worried about their happiness. Christ had none. At least not the kind of happiness that we pursue. He was sorrowful for his entire life. He was acquainted with grief. He never laughed. And how odd that the Bible says that his joy was the cross. And not the suffering of the cross, but the joy of that cross and what it would produce. He was going to have a people. Now it's small wonder that A.W. Tozier wrote that God is not concerned with your happiness. Preachers will tell you otherwise. They'll tell you, yeah, God wants you to be happy. He's really concerned about your happiness. He's not concerned about your happiness. He's concerned about your holiness. Jesus lived and died in order to make you holy. And as Tozier said, you'll be as happy as you are holy. Isaiah 53 said that Christ would see the travail of his soul and he would be satisfied. Why? Because it says his righteous servant would justify many. He would make many happy. And do you know what he did for you? He didn't just die for you. Of course, he had to die. But he didn't just die for you. He also lived for you. He lived for you. He experienced all of this sorrow so that you wouldn't have to experience eternal sorrow. He turned that all away from you by his life. 
living that life of sorrow, and then going to the death of the cross. And that's what it was like for Jesus. He was in that olive press. The life was being squeezed out of him in order that you might experience eternal life. And this is why we tell people, turn to Jesus, see what he did. Think about the life that he lived and what he did for you and then compare that and see if your life is really so bad after all. What a terrible weight placed on Jesus. And then, after that terrible weight, he died. And he died for lost sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with amazement over what the scriptures have shown us. We can't get the real picture of what it was like for Jesus until we take time to explore what his life was like. How sad that it is that so many of us as Christians know all of the details about every other kind of story, it seems. But when it comes down to what Jesus experienced, what he was going through, the events of his life, we know so little about it. We don't really think about it. And we try to sum up everything that we know about Christ. Oh, yes, we know he died for our sins, and that is so important. But what about his life? What about what he went through? And then when he says that we're going to experience many of the same things, how can we understand what these many same things are unless we look at his life? Lord, help us as Christians not to be complainers, not to murmur because of where we are, especially not when we see what Jesus went through for us. Help us, Lord, to look to our Savior as the one who saved us, not only by his death, but also by his life. Bless us as we sing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.